0: Hi there, this is the podcast designed to lift you up and make you feel better about life in the world of primary care with some free CPD thrown in too. We've got some primary care pearls of wisdom to share with you to make your life easier. Coming up, we're talking about serotonin syndrome, Would you spot it? We've also got lower urinary tract symptoms and some prescribing pointers for five alpha reductase inhibitors, a surprisingly uplifting chat about anorexia, nutrition and hydration in the last days of life, some interesting facts about BMI and ethnic groups and infantile spasms. Would you be confident to spot them? We've also got our best intention story and our primary care superheroes to put a smile on your face. But I can't do all of this by myself. Who's going to keep me company?
1: I'm Caroline Green.
0: And I'm Nick Kendrew.
1: We're both part of the Red Whale presenting team.
0: Come with us to reignite your passion for primary care.
1: Welcome to the May Primary Care Pod from Red Whale. The Primary Care Pod from Red Whale.
0: welcome back it's so lovely to have you with us we are released once a month on a friday so there's always this friday feeling uh, when we release the podcast so caroline can you give me a song that gives you the friday feeling
1: Oh, now that's a good one, Nick. Um, I want to say something like walking on sunshine. But actually, I think in reality, it's more hold on by Wilson Phillips, a really good <laughs> power ballad to let rip in the car. Um, hold on for one more day, and it'll be the weekend. So yeah, that's my Friday feelings song. What about you?
0: I like it. Um, I am loving um Kylie Minogue's new single Padam Padam at the moment. Um, which is a challenge to get your smart speaker to play sometimes, I have to say. Um, but I seriously, if you've not heard it, listen to it. It's an absolute anthem. It's just brilliant. And the video is iconic already. It's properly... You know how all her videos in the past have had something about them that you always remember? There's a real look to them. This one's got that look as well. So it's very, very good.
1: Yeah, that's going on my action plan for the end of the podcast (laughs) recording Then I haven't haven't listened or seen it yet. Um, But yeah,
0: and talking about smart speakers, you can actually ask your smart speaker to play the Redwell podcast. So, so have a go at that. Um, And what I'd love people to do, you don't
1: even need to click any buttons. Exactly. Just say
0: smart speaker, whichever one you have. So it's either Hey Siri or OK Google or Alexa, Um, then say it and then say play the Redwell podcast and it's there and I, I took a video of my smart speaker in the garden looking out with the grey sky but my little dog is in the corner and so I'm going to post that on social media and um, so little Digby oh. our producer was there as, as the smart <laughs> speaker was finding our podcast so you can look out for that on the, on the socials as well
1: brilliant so what are we going to talk about this time Caroline? Well, it's a bonanza month this month, Nick. We've got five pearls to talk about. So we're going to talk about would you spot serotonin syndrome, a little bit around prescribing in lower urinary tract symptoms. We're going to talk about a really important topic, anorexia and nutrition in the last days of life, a little visit past BMI and ethnicity and what adjustments we should be making. And then finally, how confident would you be that you would spot infantile spasms
0: excellent and of course because we're here to put a smile on your face as well as the learning we've also got our best intention story and we've got our primary care superheroes all to come as well so shall we start off then with our first pearl which is would you spot serotonin syndrome so when this was released, uh, the, what we released it with, it said, you started Idra age 72 on metazapine. Idra also takes cocodamol for osteoarthritis and geloxetine for stress incontinence. You notice a call on the triage list. Please call carer. Idra took her first tablet and she seems confused and shaky. Could this be serotonin syndrome? And there's a bite attached to it as well, a video bite from Amna, which is really well worth having a look at. And the key points when we released it were saying things like, so serotonin syndrome is a life-threatening adverse drug reaction, which is becoming more common. Most people get it after a recent change in serotonergic medication. It can occur with all serotonergic drugs, not just SSRIs. And there are three cardinal features, which are altered mental states, such as confusion, agitation and delirium. Autonomic hyperactivity, um, which would include diarrhoea, shivering and hypothermia. That's hyperthermia. And neuromuscular dysfunction, such as tremor, hyperreflexia and hypertonia. So there's a lot in that, Caroline, isn't there?
1: Yeah, there is. And this was definitely the pearl that made me uncertain. And I know when as a team at Red Whale, we were writing this article. And then when Amna did the brilliant job of filming her first ever Red Whale bite on this... I think for lots of us, there was some real thinking in this because actually, how common is it to have someone like Idra who actually is on more than one drug that has serotonergic properties? And I don't think this would have been at the front of my mind until I read this article. So, yeah, I still I can still really visualize from the video. Amna doing her magic finger of putting all those drugs upon the yes. screen. And yeah, those three classes. So, all antidepressants and antipsychotic medications can do this. Tramadol and opiates. And then some more unusual things that we might not think of. So, novel an- um, psychoactive drugs, St. John's wort, grapefruit juice. Yes. You know, I think, um, it really sort of opened my eyes to be a little bit more aware of this as an adverse drug reaction and to be really cautious when we're sort of considering adding a second serotonergic drug to someone who's already on something else. Because it's so easy, isn't it, Nick? The warning comes up on the screen and you just keep pressing the button because you're so used to seeing the warnings, but might be a good reason for that.
0: Exactly. And I think we often get overwhelmed by the warnings as well. And I remember... This being on my radar, but in the periphery, probably about 10 years ago, when you'd maybe have a patient that was on tramadol and you'd want to start them on an SSRI for their depression and it would flag up and you'd think, should I, shouldn't I? And then maybe you'd work with them about maybe not being on the tramadol, weaning off that, finding something more suitable before you started the SSRI. And I kept thinking, I wonder if I'm being a bit overcautious here, but it's really interesting to see it actually written down in black and white. Um, and I thought... Um, the thing that jumped out at me was about how it can happen after overdose, obviously. But traditionally, we all were told that SSRIs were safer in overdose than tricyclics, because I think with tricyclics, there's really bad cardiac toxicity. Um, and so that may well be true, but it feels that we're being told that SSRIs, they're not as safe as maybe we thought they were in overdose.
1: Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I, I think what this pearl has done for me Is change how I talk to patients about serotonergic drugs when I'm starting them. So, this is something I now discuss. And the other thing it's changed for me is just asking that question about recreational drugs. Now, of course, we always should be asking that as part of our assessment for depression or anxiety, but do we ask it at the point of prescribing and do we specifically ask about those novel psychoactive drugs? And if for you, if you're sat there thinking, which are those again? There is a separate article in GPCPD that just goes through those different classes. They're more commonly used these days, and it's just something we probably need to be more aware of and ask about.
0: Yes, and it's something that I had to look up as well, because it doesn't really trip off the tongue, does it? I think it was in 2016 they became illegal. So before that, they were legal highs, in inverted commas, weren't they? So a lot of people probably don't think that they are as as toxic or as dangerous as, as other sort of recreational drugs, and so therefore they might not be on their radar as being something that they need to talk about.
1: Absolutely. I, yeah, I think that was a real sort of learning point for us in the Redwell team and for delegates who learned about this on the course as well. I also thought
0: that when
1: it was talking about the fact that
0: patients present with serotonin syndrome, they, they usually have a, a combination of serotonergic drugs or a history, mm-hmm. as we sort of mentioned briefly earlier, of accidental or deliberate overdose. But it can also occur with a single serotonergic drug at therapeutic yeah. levels. And I found that quite scary
1: Yes. And that was why this was the one that made me uncertain, because of course, you know, it's unusual. But what they said in the article was that, that there is a genetic susceptibility to this. And it's all about sort of genetic variability of the cytochrome P450 system. Now, I say that and have absolutely no memory whatsoever of what that means. But I know it's a thing that metabolizes drugs. So yeah, mostly we're going to want to be cautious about prescribing multiple agents. But just now and again, we could be caught out with the person who we start on an entirely normal dose of a drug like sertraline, something we do, you know, multiple times a week in primary care. And it's just having it at the back of our mind that if we get that call back, that that person has altered mental state or, you know, tremor or a fever very soon after starting that drug. Actually, we need to be probably a lot more vigilant than we might have been before we read this pearl. Yes, and
0: the other thing that I found interesting was talking about trying to prevent it and we should be allowing proper washout being with these kind of drugs. And something that we all do quite a lot in primary care at times is we, we swap and stop antidepressants. And I know that with the Morsley guidelines, which is what I follow when I'm swapping and stopping, they say yeah. that if you are switching uh, to any SSRI or then the vaccine from any SSRI except fluoxetine, then you'd stop the old drug and start the new one the next day. And I just wonder, so that doesn't feel to me like a massive washout. Um, I just wonder if if this is becoming more of a common problem. I wonder if that might be reviewed in the future and we might have a bigger washout, perhaps, I don't know.
1: It's an interesting space to watch, isn't it, Nick? And, and I think, you know, we've seen the story around antidepressants and their side effects and the withdrawal symptoms that patients have reported for years has changed actually recently in the medical guidelines. NICE are now taking much more account of what patients have been telling us for a long time, that when they're withdrawing their antidepressants, that can be really difficult, even for drugs that we didn't think. So you're right, you know, the rationale behind the Mornsley guidelines at the moment for any SSRI apart from fluoxetine is those drugs have a really short half-life. So actually you get pretty good washout in quite a short period of time but yeah maybe we will see that change Um I guess for now I'm probably not going to change my practice around that specific thing but I would be more cautious if they were on another serotonergic drug like an opiate or like tramadol as well it's just good to be aware of this and you know guidelines are just guidelines and patients are individuals so yeah
0: exactly and I think just to wrap up and um, the The immediate steps we should all be aware of if we're worried about this would be to stop the triggering drug, not to use antipyretics for the hyperthermia aspect of it and and to discuss all possible cases with secondary care.
1: Yeah, I think that's really key. And, you know, that challenged me at first and I was like, really, if they've just a bit of tremor, am I going to pick up the phone? But then actually, when you read the studies that were behind this paper... The issue is that mild symptoms can progress actually quite rapidly to severe serotonergic syndrome and and what people need is a period of observation of between 6 and 24 hours and obviously we can't do that in primary care and some of these people will go on to get quite sick and need intensive care interventions. So I think entirely reasonable for us to be sharing that risk discussing it in secondary care and just arranging that the person might have that period of observation. Excellent. So shall we move on to our next pearl? The one that surprised me this time. uh, So we're going to talk a little bit about lower urinary tract symptoms. Um, Now, Nick, how long did it take you to read this particular article?
0: So this particular article took me exactly 18 minutes and 20 seconds to read, which um, is quite long for our pearls, isn't it? It was a Um, bit
1: of a mega pearl, wasn't it, actually, this one?
0: So this said, lower urinary tract symptoms are common in men aged over 50, although only a minority of men present to primary care for support. Of these, about 6% go on to require surgery. The remainder can be managed with a combination of lifestyle advice and medication. One option for men with symptoms and an enlarged prostate is a 5-alpha reductase inhibitor such as finasteride and dutasteride.
1: Yeah, so this um, this um was quite a long article and sometimes we do give these away because we know lots of you who get our pearls or listen to the podcast are preparing for your AKT exam or you might be working in a new role in primary care, having moved from secondary care. And it's really valuable to get the big picture. But what we're going to focus on this month is around the prescribing dilemmas, isn't it, Nick? And as you said, 5-alpha reductase inhibitors are one of the options we have um so the basics with lower urinary tract symptoms is you know the first thing all these men should be offered a PSA when they present and then alpha blockers are the first line treatments and we only go on to using a 5-alpha reductase inhibitor such a tongue twister isn't it, it is. um if <laughs> if the alpha blocker isn't giving them sufficient symptom relief and they have ongoing voiding symptoms and they have an enlarged prostate. And NICE tell us their prostate should be 30 grams or more or the size of a golf ball. Now, yes. how confident How confident do you feel in making that judgment in, a, in an examination setting, Nick?
0: I think that's a challenge. Um, and I often, I'm probably less specific than that. I've never been confident enough to give it how many grams it is. But I might kind of say... Small, medium or large. <laughs> yes. Um, that's yes. about as far as I go. How about you? <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. So I, d- I definitely, um, my, one of my superpowers is not the ability to estimate the weight of a prostate. Definitely. I, I can, I, comparisons with different fruit, maybe, but yeah. So <laughs> yes. I think the key message is five alpha reductase inhibitors are a second line option for men with an enlarged prostate. And if you are a trainee out there, your confidence in determining that increases as you examine more prostates, basically, doesn't it? But we don't want to set unrealistic expectations. Um, if any of you out there can estimate the weight of a prostate, let us know. And how do you yes. do it? And how did you learn? Exactly. <laughs> so if you do get to that stage, where you're going to prescribe a 5-alpha reductase inhibitor, should we talk about what some of the things that surprised us about considerations we need to take in prescribing?
0: Yes, so I think the first thing that we should talk about is the fact mm. that there are two different doses there's the one for alopecia, which isn't normally prescribed on the NHS, so we might actually have patients already on it, and it's one of those things that if you don't ask, they might well not tell you, and also that there's the higher dose which is for the lower urinary tract symptoms as well. Um, but the thing that I found really interesting and which has again been in the periphery of my learning and it's it's important to cement that is the impact that it has on PSA. And the fact that we should be doing a a baseline and a a DRE, so an examination before starting the 5-alpha reductase inhibitor, and then a PSA six months later to give you that new baseline.
1: Yeah, this is a really important point because, of course, um, because of the effect the 5-alpha reductase inhibitor has on the metabolic properties of the prostate, it can reduce a man's PSA by up to 50%. And so having that baseline before you start means that down the line, you know, if the man's been on the drug for a couple of years and then you do another PSA test, you have a much better idea of whether that's actually gone up or not. And of course, If the PSA does go up from the new baseline that you took at six months, there's two possibilities of how you interpret that. One is this could be suggestive of an underlying prostate cancer. But the second option is it may also suggest non-compliance with the drug. And it's gone back up again because he stopped taking the finasteride or the detasteride. So it's just a bit of complexity there that we need to be aware of. And, And that's all explained in the article. What other things did you learn about prescribing this drug?
0: The thing that's interesting and important is to to think about women of childbearing potential, and it might be the patient's partner, but it might be that it's a carer as well and and so yeah. they they need to be warned well, not to handle these medications because that can cause problems for them, can't it?
1: Yeah. So they, they are, they're androgen blocking drugs, sort of. And so for any women of childbearing potential, if they absorb the drug and they were to become pregnant, it could potentially affect the development of the fetus. So it's really important we make sure that partners and carers are aware of that. And men who are taking this drug, who are sexually active with women of childbearing potential should use condoms because some of the drug can pass in semen. So I have to say again, these were sort of new learning points for me.
0: Yes, and and the things that I would have always talked about when prescribing this for patients would be the sexual function and effects on that and also male breast tissue. Uh, So with sexual function, one in 10 men can end up with ejaculation and erection problems, but these can often improve. But it's one of those ones, again, that you need to sort of flag it up because it's unlikely that somebody's going to come to you unless they know that it's, it's a side effect that could be related to the medication because they might just be embarrassed about it. And then with male breast tissue, I knew about the fact that in some people it can cause gynecomastia, but I wasn't aware until reading this that there's the very rare risk of breast cancer. And so we need to make sure that our patients are aware of changes in their breast tissue.
1: Yeah, so if we're doing shared decision-making about starting this drug, and actually if you read in the article, the evidence base for these drugs is marginal, to be honest. It can help to reduce the risk of urinary retention, but they, uh, yeah. if you're interested in the evidence, read it. It's really important that we're in a position to discuss the risks as well as the benefits with men. And for those of you preparing for your AKT, this kind of prescribing material and the serotonin syndrome that we talked about really common sort of hotbed of places for questions. So interesting stuff, eh? Absolutely,
0: and we talked about the drugs there. And the thing that was really interesting for me as well was the conservative management section. I remember yeah. going on a Redwell course. Oh blimey, probably in like twenty fifteen. Uh, and I think it might have been James Cave that was presenting, and he talked about conservative management for this. And he talked about this thing called urethral milking for treating for yes. post-micturition dribble. And I remember him saying at the time there has to be a better name for this. (laughs) And he put out a a call to the audience to see if anybody could come up with anything better. And so I think we should ask our listeners to send in, if they have any ideas of what we could do, give it a better name than urethral milking, I think we should we should get them to do that. Um, (laughs) And also things like bladder, bladder training are really important and advice about fluid intake, that's all in the article. But the thing that also was there is that nice saying they tell us not to recommend penile clamps, which I have hmm. never recommended for a patient. I didn't even know no. that we could offer them. <laughs> I won't be offering them in the future. But, you know, all these things that perhaps we don't do for a reason. Um, and that's, that's nice to see NICE backing yeah. us up on that.
1: Yeah, and just making me reflect perhaps something that some poor men have done. Um, and how uncomfortable that must have been. So, yeah, gosh. Yeah. Uh, yes, no penile clamps, definitely. Let's put okay. down the action plan. Yes, okay. yes. Okay,
0: so, so that is the end of that second pill. And now, as we talk about every time, this is your podcast and we're here to not only teach you stuff and and go through some interesting learning points, but also to put a smile on your face as well. And so we have our best intention story and our best intention story this month comes all the way from Sydney, Australia. So thank you, Jamie, for taking the time to send in your story. And here we go. It was another beautiful morning in Sydney as I set off to work. I'd applied my sunscreen, always Factor 50, and I'd made sure to put some on my arms because I was wearing my favourite short-sleeved, pristine, starched white shirt. The blue sky was flawless, as indeed was my outfit. (laughs) Midway through the morning, one of my patients, a man in his mid-thirties, his probably one of my favourite patients, he had complex um, health needs and learning difficulty and he came in to see me and he was presenting with what he described as back pain. Having gone through his history, I then examined him and found a 5 centimeter erythematous fluctuant swelling on his upper back and there was a central punctum there and pus was already draining from it. Now we're very lucky here that we have access to in-house ultrasound so I quickly got him round for this which confirmed either an infected sebaceous cyst or an abscess. I discussed the diagnosis with my patient and consented him for incision and drainage that morning. I took him to the procedure room. I should say that this was in between other patients during my busy morning because I didn't want to delay my patient's care. With his other health issues, he wasn't great at seeking help when he needed it, and I wasn't sure that he'd come back tomorrow. So in my haste whilst trying to juggle everything, I didn't fully gown up. Well, It did cross my mind, but a little voice in my head said, don't worry about all of that, it'll be fine. In future, I will be ignoring that voice, because after a very small amount of pressure from a tiny incision after local anaesthetic, a quite violent gush of purulent discharge sprayed out, covering me from head to foot. I stood there, frozen in time. There was pus in my hair, covering my favourite white shirt... And this particular look wouldn't have been complete without my chinos being covered in pus too. As I stood there, grasping what had happened, another voice in my head was saying all sorts of words that I couldn't possibly share with you. But you get the idea, (laughs) and I'm sure that by now you can picture the scene. I paused the procedure, got myself cleaned up as best as I could, gowned up, completed the procedure, gave the patient his antibiotics and sent him on his way. I had no other clothes other than my gym gear that I was planning to use after work, so I continued the rest of the day in my gym shorts and a t-shirt. Luckily, Australian patients are quite laid back and didn't even notice I was in shorts and a (laughs) t-shirt. My learning from all of this is not to listen to that cheeky voice in your head, always fully gown up when doing an incision and drainage of an abscess, and ideally have a spare set of clothes. (laughs) so thank you Jamie for that (laughs) Um, something else for our action plans always have a spare pair of clothes
1: (laughs) yes absolutely and such lovely intentions to fit someone in and then oh exactly yes at least he had his gym kit though what would have happened
0: well precisely yes exactly so yeah always have gym kit at the very least i would say um if you have a best intention story then please do send it in to us and we've got the contact details in the show notes and you can also dm us directly uh, on our social media platforms which include twitter instagram and facebook as well Okay. So now Caroline, you've got the, the calendar of what's going on in Red Whale this month.
1: Oh, I have. So June is another busy month. And the first thing I want to tell everyone about is there is going to be a free webinar on the evening of June the 27th on the really interesting topic of the. health needs of adults with cerebral palsy. We're teaming up with a great charity called Up Movement and that will be freely available to any health professional in the UK who would like to join us. Look out for the Pearl this month that's coming to promote that and with sign up options, but you can sign up now on our website. Otherwise, our lovely women's health team are in the studio. Helen and Lucy are on the sofa doing, a uh, women's health red well together. We're very busy in Staffordshire this month. So if you're joining any of our team for a number of different courses, say hi to Osma and IO and Hussain who'll be up there and a bit of a shout out to East of England VTS who we're working with this month as well. Uh, lots of other things, but I think that's enough for now. <laughs>
0: So, yeah, very, very busy. And thank you all for your feedback. And we've had a, a five star yeah. review on Apple Podcasts. So thank you for that. And this is from another tired GP and they've written this podcast has gone straight to the top of my my listen list. Love the format of four pearls of learning and the humour as well. Also from a trusted and respected source. So thanks for making my life easier, Red Whale exclamation mark. So thank you so much for that. Um it's very kind of you and much appreciated. Um and if you'd like to leave a, a nice review for us, then feel free. That's be very kind. <laughs>
1: Lovely. Well, shall we uh, go on and talk about the bonus extra pearl for this month, Nick?
0: Yes, let's do that. So our bonus extra poll was BMI and ethnic groups. And there was a look at a study that quantifies the risk of diabetes in people of different ethnicities and considers how we translate this new evidence into action. So what did we learn from this one, Caroline?
1: Right, really, really important learning in this one that has now been translated into the new NICE guidance on obesity, which is that for non-white populations the risks of obesity, the health risks occur at much lower BMIs. And if we're not aware of this, and if we don't adjust for this, we stand a really significant risk of exacerbating current health inequalities that we see in care. So what this really means in practice, if we look back at the research that was behind the changes that NICE have made, is for somebody of South Asian heritage, their risk of type 2 diabetes is the same as somebody of white heritage with a BMI of 30 when their BMI is just 23.9. Goodness me. Yeah. And so what that means for us, we already know as primary care clinicians, we're not great at eyeballing and sort of guessing what people's BMI is. But someone with a BMI of 23.9 is likely to look pretty slim to us. So we really need to cement this knowledge in our minds and actually recognize we need to approach this topic differently. So you will find in the written pearl, because this isn't the sort of thing you're going to remember, you're going to have to red whale it, a table that shows the different BMI categorizations for different ethnic groups. And that would be a really useful thing just to stick on your action plan to bookmark, because we should be thinking um, about risks of obesity at much lower BMIs in people from South Asian, Chinese, Middle Eastern, Black African and African-Caribbean family backgrounds. Real real change in practice there.
0: Yes. And it's another one of those ones, if you don't think about it, you're not going to discover it, are you? And um, we also talked about it briefly when we were talking about semaglutide in our first episode. So if you want we to did. Back and have a listen to that, then it's all there. Um, but it's yeah, one of those ones to red whale um, if you want to look something up. So shall we move on to our next pearl?
1: Yes. This was the one that made me smile. Um, again, in a bittersweet way, I've noticed in these pearls, what the one that makes me smile often is in a bittersweet way. And this was a pearl about anorexia and nutrition in the last days of life. And I don't know about you, Nick, but one of the most rewarding parts of working in primary care can be supporting our patients and their families at the end of life. And that's not easy these days. It was easier five, 10 years ago, but it can be a really rewarding part of the job. But a common thing that can happen when you're visiting patients or when you're talking to family members is you get that message. I think they've given up. They've just stopped eating. Has that happened to you?
0: Yes, it has. And it's often difficult to to try and reassure them in the way that you want to. But I was thinking about what you were just saying about palliative care is that for me, it, it feels that that's when what we do in primary care all comes together because it's when we put the patient yeah. at the very center of of care and of decision making and we involve their loved ones in that discussion and you often have a, a you know a group discussion don't you and and it's about what they want for the best and and it feels very liberating because i think sometimes in in fact what what happens in those situations is that then you know you're aware of guidelines and things but it's very much the patient is the one that makes their choice, and I just think it's not easy to do, but it is very rewarding, and it is something that is, as you were saying, it's more difficult to do because with continuity of care and with things being so busy, and perhaps we we don't visit as much because we have our fantastic paramedic colleagues out there and um, helping us to do that, um, and it's very much you know they can be our eyes and ears about it. So, so trying to get a handle of what's going on is is more challenging than perhaps it used to be, um, but but it's that is that reassuring language that that you try to to share with the patients to to explain to them about how um the body is shutting down and about how perhaps yeah. it doesn't need the nutrition that that somebody that isn't in that situation would need
1: yeah i think that's right you can really help to empower both The person who's the patient and their family and carers. And of course, what makes this so difficult is food is so much more than food, isn't it? It's uh, eating together as families often is a really strong part of our social culture and what knits us together. And food can be a sign of showing love and care. And, you know, if you've been supporting somebody through a terminal illness, as their family members, often one of the things you've been able to do when everything else is out of your control is to offer them food and to cook for them. And then when that starts to disappear, it's really easy to get into this dynamic where there's guilt on both sides. So guilt on the part of the patient because they just can't face eating anymore. They're just not hungry. And guilt on the part of the carers and family that they can't provide what they think that person needs. And it's it's such a privilege for any of us in primary care to be able to support in that setting. And, you know, this this article um, really just offered some tips um, adapted both from the Scottish Palliative Care Guidelines, which are brilliant, but also just from GP wisdom. I was
0: just going to say the thing that you were talking about with the, the social aspect of eating uh, is very important to, to register because that social interaction is something that the patient will will very much value. And I think sometimes with the best intentions, relatives might be feeling because of the guilt or because they might be thinking, oh, they want to have their privacy. They might be encouraging them to eat by themselves. And so that, that one thing to bear in mind is that by making sure that everybody's aware of the importance of the social interaction, then hopefully the patient will be able to still and um, eat and and enjoy the social interaction um, even if they might if just have a, a mouthful or two
1: yeah absolutely and and i think you know a lot of it is about through our communication skills just giving permission so permission in those last weeks of life to stop worrying about you know diabetic control cholesterol what healthy eating might look like anything the person fancies Is probably reasonable and as you say you know bringing back that social construct even if the person doesn't eat at all or even if they just choose to have one mouthful being part of that family environment of eating together providing the smell isn't overwhelming will be a really useful thing
0: what about have we been encouraged or asked to prescribe sip feeds what do we think about that
1: Yeah. So that's, uh, this is another, you know, really key area. And there's no evidence at all that sip feeds or other food supplements have any benefits over ordinary food. So really, if possible, go for a little bit of what they fancy. It does depend a bit on the social situation. You know, for people, if they're living alone and maybe don't have a support network. We're not saying never use them, but actually they don't have magical powers. So if the person would rather have a milkshake or a smoothie, go for it, essentially. And the other thing to say is sometimes the situation does get complicated and there can be disagreement between different family members or disagreement between what the person wants, who you're advocating for and the family. And if you find yourself in that situation, in the article, the GMC guidance is there. So if you need more information, you can have a look at that.
0: Excellent, thank you. So shall we move on to the, the final pearl? And this one is infantile spasms, would you be confident to spot them? And this was released at the end of May and it was National Epilepsy Week. So that's why we released that pearl. And so infantile spasms, we said, was a, a severe form of infantile epilepsy. And it's a high-stakes diagnosis because early treatment can significantly reduce the risks of long-term poor neurodevelopmental outcomes and so awareness of this rare presentation might produce a kind of what we call a spidey sense moment in our primary care consultations and there's also a video bite to go with it as well
1: yeah and i have to say nick this of all the pearls this is the one if you've time watch the video bite because within that there's some video footage from the wonderful uk infantile spasm trust about what these spasms can look like and We originally wrote this article, actually, in response to a wonderful delegate who came on one of our face-to-face courses probably about seven years ago, Dr. Louisa Coyle. And she is a GP and she's also a trustee of the UK Infantile Spasms Trust. And she has a child with infantile spasms. And she raised our awareness as a presenting team about this condition. And it's it's really rare. You know, as a primary care clinician, we will probably see one case in our lifetime. But it's one of those unusual high stakes conditions that if we think about it and spot it the first time we see it, it's likely that the child will have a better outcome. So it's worthwhile being aware what these spasms look like. Nick, had you heard of this condition before?
0: Not before before the teaching on it. And what struck me when I watched the video is how subtle it is. Uh, and it felt you know i remember watching going, oh my goodness would i pick that up um but i think it's one of those ones where if you literally just saw that you, you probably wouldn't pick it up but it's about listening to the parents their concerns yeah. as well because they obviously know their baby best and they would say to you this isn't right or something like that and it's about taking that seriously and when i first started reading the poll um i i I have to admit to feeling a little bit overwhelmed by everything on there thinking oh my goodness how am I going to pick this up how am I going to um, you know see this on a d- busy day in primary care and then when I watched the video by I was actually reassured by that because there's a lovely bit in it where Sarah kind of ties it all together there's a slide where she looks at all the different things that are very similar such as infantile spasms also she talks about brief resolving unexplained events so bruis and breath holding and reflex anoxic seizures so all of those things that you think oh my goodness how am I going to know what these are and actually what she then says which completely gets rid of that anxiety and the feeling of overwhelm she says what we need to do is just realize that these things are, are possibly there and then we speak to secondary care about it so you don't have to make that diagnosis you just got to realize there's something going on along those lines and then secondary care should be able to help you but it's referring on the same day isn't it
1: Yeah, absolutely. And we should feel empowered to do that and have that conversation with paediatrics because thinking specifically about infantile spasms, they often get mistaken for reflux or for the morrow reflex. And what we're seeing is basically spasms that can occur at any time of day, but they're more common after a child wakes and they tend to occur in clusters. So one after another, after another, after another, lasting one or two seconds And the infant, it's usually between two and 14 months, will often pull their knees out and extend their arms at the same time and also flex their head and possibly their trunk. Really hard to describe on a podcast, actually. So this is why I say if you only do one thing, watch the bite or go to the UK Infantile Spasm Trust. They've got a brilliant video there of lots of children at the diagnosis stage of what the spasms look like. But just like you said, If we suspect this, if it crosses our mind, if a parent comes and says, I'm worried my child has got this and brings us a video and we think, yeah, it could be, or there's other funny events that we can't explain. We should completely feel empowered to pick up the phone and talk to peds because actually what the NICE guidelines say about infantile spasm is not only should they be seen by paediatrics the same day, they should be seen by a tertiary centre neurology paediatrician within 24 hours. Now, I don't know about you, but I can't make that happen from primary care. So we just need to involve secondary care in this one.
0: Yeah. And I think yeah. the other thing just to bear in mind from the the history taking is what you were talking about with these clusters in that if somebody comes in with a video, it's going to be a yeah. snapshot and it's probably just going to be just one, you know, one off thing. But you need to be asking how often is this happening? And then again, that would be maybe like the light bulb moment and thinking I need to speak to secondary care about this. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Well, thank you for that and that's the end of our final pearl and we managed to squeeze in five this month so it's been a real bonanza of of pearls (laughs) so so there we are and just before we go uh, we've got time for some more primary care superheroes so thank you for sending them in and here we go And our first one is from James and he'd like to nominate the acute home visiting service in Sutton. They do all our home visits. It's paramedic led and they do a brilliant job. So thank you to them.
1: A lovely one from Emma. My primary care hero is Hamish. He's our local pharmacist and he's just great. Since our toddler was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes last year, we have spent a lot of time hanging around our local pharmacy. Hamish has really helped ease our worries and calm our fears. He's bent over backwards to accommodate our last-minute panicky prescription requests, loaned us finger-prick test strips when they were missed off a prescription, given us samples of adhesive removal spray to try, tracked down missing insulin vials, and always, always, always reassures us that nothing is too much trouble. He is truly a fantastic face of pharmacy and a first-class primary care hero to us.
0: Wow. That's, that's Hamish. So thank you for Emma for that one. And then finally from Sarah, um, I'd like to nominate cleaner Carol from Regent Street Surgery in Gloucestershire as my primary care superhero this month. She retired today after a long time of service to the NHS. First as an auxiliary nurse on the respiratory wards, followed by 20 years as a cleaner in our surgery. She was so much more than a cleaner. Beloved by staff and patients alike, she kept the fabric of the dilapidated NHS premises pristine. Always had a cup of tea on hand for the busy clinicians, but most of all, she always had a kind word and reassurance Uh for the patients. We always said that we could have prescribed her homespun wisdom so many of our patients wouldn't have needed the doctor after all. Such a lovely lady, and we wish her all the best in her well-deserved retirement.
1: Oh, that's lovely.
0: And if you've got a primary care superhero, then please, please do send it in to us. We'll be looking out for those. Okay, well, that is the end of this month's podcast. So all the resources that you need are in the show notes. And also there are links in the show description on your preferred podcasting platform as well timings i almost forgot and i know that lots of you have contacted us to say that you really appreciate it when i tell you how long it's taken taking me to read the pearls because then it gives you an idea of how long it will take you so just to recap would you spot serotonin syndrome that took me 15 minutes to read the pearl and then eight minutes to watch the video bite then lower urinary tract symptoms i said to caroline earlier that was 18 minutes and 20 seconds and then bmi in minority ethnic groups took me three minutes 24 Anorexia, Nutrition and Hydration in the Last Days of Life took me 5 minutes and 20 to read that. And finally, Infantile Spasms, would you be confident to spot them? That took me 5 minutes 40 to read the pearl and 7 minutes 19 to watch the video bite. Caroline?
1: If you want to contact us, we are at GP underscore update on Twitter. If you want us to see something about the podcast, then please use hashtag Red Whale Pod.
0: And the other thing that you can do if you click on the link in the bio on social media is to leave us a voice message telling us about anything that you found helpful or would like us to go over.
1: You can also email us. Our addresses: podcast at red-whale.co.uk.
0: And just before we go, let's have a quick look at some learning points that we've teased out. So what have you got, Caroline?
1: Key one for me, just think about serotonin syndrome if you're prescribing any of those drugs and remember to ask about those novel psychoactive agents and St John's Walk.
0: One thing that jumped out for me was that a person of South Asian heritage who had a BMI of 23.9 would have the same risk of type 2 diabetes as a person with white heritage and a BMI of 30.
1: And then maybe the last one, if you're starting those 5-alpha reductase inhibitors remember that baseline PSA and to repeat at six months and to adjust PSAs. Important. I'm Nick Kendrew. And I'm Caroline Green. And until next time, remember to keep Redwell Knowledge, formerly GPCPD, open on your desktop at work, so that we're with you when you need some extra information or reassurance. Take care and look after yourself.
0: Yes, take care, look after yourself and goodbye.
1: Goodbye.